0: so i'm not against hard power i am also for soft power and smart power is when you have the thing in pretty good balance which is hard to achieve
1: It is the week of September 27th, and welcome to Episode 99 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow. Today, we will be doing a deep dive with Dr. Christopher Ford, NSI Advisory Board member and former Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation, and also the author of a recent NSI paper entitled Principled Conservatism in in America's Foreign Affairs and National Security, and also former Congresswoman Jane Harmon, a nine-term representative for California's 36th Congressional District and now Distinguished Fellow and President Emerita at the Wilson Center and author of the book, Insanity Defense, Why Our Failure to Confront Hard National Security Problems Makes Us Less Safe. Dr. Ford and Congresswoman Harmon, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
2: Pleasure to be on the podcast last.
1: Dr. Ford, let's start with you. Walk us through, if you would, what you consider to be a conservative approach to national security
2: and foreign policy. Okay, that's certainly a fair question. I guess I would say I would, I would flag four basic sort of points or tendencies or characteristics. The first would be, at least my feeling is that traditionally speaking, conservatives uh, are more comfortable with U.S. strength and power in the world. And sometimes Sees on the political left sometimes almost an, an almost an embarrassment with U.S. strength and a sort of a, a suspicion that there might be something illegitimate about it. I don't think conservatives have that problem. We're we're quite happy being big and powerful in the world and are not uh, ashamed or embarrassed uh, to to use that power where we think it is necessary or good things can be accomplished by so doing. Um, so comfort with U.S. strength maybe is sort of one piece. Um, the second is related to the first, and that is to say, I think there is a uh, a tendency also to prioritize and focus upon issues of security and what the historian E.H. Carr once called the factor of power um, in the world um, as the sort of first among equals of the values that should underpin our policy. Uh, which doesn't mean that other values are not incredibly important. It's just that sometimes when they rub up against the factor of security, one perhaps has to hold one's nose a bit and deal with uh, what one needs to deal with in order to to, to check the security box. So the second piece then would be sort of prioritization of security. The third piece would be a a focus upon the the salience uh, and the legitimacy of the nation state as a mode of organization uh, in the world. Um, I think conservatives are traditionally pretty skeptical of the kind of what they might stereotype as a sort of rootless cosmopolitanism of borders and uh, nations being things of the past or or in some sense sort of retrograde artifacts of a bygone era that we should be sort of moving beyond. Um, I don't think conservatives would tend to agree with that. I I think it may be true, as the Marxist historian Benedict Anderson once put it, that nations are imagined communities. Um, But they are communities that are pretty compellingly imagined by lots of people. And indeed, all communities are Imagined communities, in some sense, and I think a conservative would would insist upon the continued legitimacy and the importance of that mode of organization uh, in uh, in the world, and perhaps assert its its relevance uh, against some of the sort of cosmopolitan, globalizing trends uh, that uh, that one hears uh, in international discourse from time to time. So the third piece would be a degree of comfort with an emphasis upon the nation state, and finally, I think a traditional conservative brings to the foreign policy and National Security Table, the kind of Burkean sensibility of uh skepticism about enthusiasm if you will sort of a, a distrust of sweeping ideological answers or, or efforts to to perfect society uh through social engineering or what or what have you i think they would tend to agree with uh, uh with kurt voglin many years ago who spoke about the importance of not immanentizing the eschaton that is to say don't try to create transcendent conditions of moral perfection in the here and now leave the afterlife to the afterlife and uh content yourself with dealing with the sort of mucky interactions of fallible people uh, in the real world because nothing but evil comes from trying to assume you can make it perfect.
1: Uh, Thank you, Dr. Ford. There actually is an award on the podcast for uh, mentioning the imminence of the eschaton that early on, so I congratulate you. (laughs) Uh, Congresswoman, I want to ask you to respond to Dr. Ford and offer perhaps an alternative view, or where does your view differentiate from Dr. Ford's? You represented the Democratic Party and, and of course, your constituents in Congress for several years. You've got a long track record of involvement in national security issues. I'd love to hear your take on his description of the conservative approach.
0: Well, thank you. And let me just add that that last answer, the fourth part of the last answer, was so so intellectually interesting and reminded me of being in a government philosophy class in college a thousand years ago that I'm, I'm I'm kind of transported. This is very very enlightened conversation. Well, l- let me start with the old adage that politics stops at the at the water's edge. And I grew up in a world I, I bet Chris and you did too, Les, uh, where we thought that most foreign policy for the United States was rooted in, in bipartisanship. Uh, I certainly thought that, and I want to think that. That doesn't mean we agree on everything, but that the basic approach is the U.S. is stronger when uh, Congress and the executive on a bipartisan basis put forward some some concepts for, for uh, uh, anchoring our foreign policy focus. And so let me start there. That's where I come from. That's what I think. To look at uh, uh, some of what uh, Chris just said, the first, his first point about comfort and U.S. strength, I think we need to have comfort in U.S. strength. I think the U.S. has certainly uh, been the anchor uh, piece of the liberal world order that emerged after World War II, which I think has kept the world more or less at peace, not perfectly, uh, for a long time. So I'm still for that. Uh, in terms of prioritizing security, with power as the first value. I might disagree there. I certainly would prioritize security, but I think uh, the way to achieve security in a world that's full of uh, rogue actors, uh, including terrorists, but not not exclusively, and some failing states and some bad actors who are leaders of states, is to uh, win the argument. And I don't think you do that necessarily with force. I think you, you do that with a better argument. And I'm very bullish on U.S. soft power, not to exclude hard power. So that's a slight difference. Legitimacy of the nation state, yes. But there are forces now, uh, certainly since uh, the Treaty of Westphalia in the 1600s, that weren't imagined then and that make the nation state, even with strong leadership in it, uh, somewhat vulnerable, and we can just tick them off. Globalization, uh, certainly in terms of the economy, it's not going to go away. Terrorism, hopefully it will reduce, but it's not going to go away. Uh, climate threats, uh, pandemics—all of these things uh, don't respect nation, you know, board, the the borders of nations, and make it harder for even a uh, benevolent, uh, impressive uh, nation-state leader uh, to govern well. So, and then finally. Uh, distrust of sweeping ideological answers. Yeah, I, I can go there too. I, I think that uh, uh, as a mother of four, perfection is not an option. So I agree that <laughs> uh, my children would certainly agree with that too. Uh, but I, I agree that we should uh, be much more measured. And again, if our construct is, we're all together in terms of coming up with a foreign policy strategy and framework for the United States. That is a constraining mechanism because we're not going to agree, I don't think, and I don't think we should, on some sweeping ideological change.
1: Chris, let me come back to you on uh, something the congresswoman mentioned, which was that she listed soft power or some would call it smart power is maybe a higher priority for her uh, than the, the hard power, and the national security aspects you described. How should conservatives think about the use of soft power tools Uh, trade, investment, foreign Mm -hmm. assistance, uh, humanitarian aid to uh, desperate populations. What's your sense of how conservatives should be embracing or not those tools for the United States?
2: I, I do worry that sometimes we conservatives have undervalued those as tools of strategy. Uh, not that we haven't valued things like trade and business. I mean, I think perhaps on my side of the aisle, we have sometimes historically done so almost to a to a fault, but done so w- without making it a piece of strategy. Just sort of by hoping that uh, you know what's the old you know, the old line about what's good for for you know business is good for America. That isn't necessarily true, um, and one needs to think about it through the prism of strategy. So I think perhaps as a uh, as, as tools of strategy, we probably need to, to sharpen uh, our our wits a little bit on that. Um, but I certainly would not agree with. Would not disagree at all with the importance of those kinds of factors as as instruments of of, of power, um, n- nor would I want to be depicted as just promoting hard power answers. I do think that there I mean, there is a tendency with soft power. I mean, the equivalent of or the, the failing on the conservative side to think that everything will be fine as long as you promote you know, business and, and and people making lots of money. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also an equivalent failing uh, of soft power strategy on the left to assume that, well, because people want to wear jeans and, uh, and, and watch Hollywood films, that therefore the world will turn out the way that we wish it to, to be You know, 50 years from now. Neither of those things is actually an adequate answer to the challenges that we face. Um, And I do think on on both sides, we should be doing more to think about those things through the prism of strategy. Now, we don't have the options um, of just decreeing those things differently in the way that, for example, our our strategic competitors in China do. They can, in effect, wave their hand and make foreign direct investment and, and, you know, allegedly private economic actors, you know, march in line uh, in a different direction should they so desire i guess but uh, you know we don't have those options we have to have a different toolkit in how we approach challenges of whole of government answers we can't just you know put a gun to people's figurative heads and and make it differently but uh, but with those caveats i do think we need to be thinking better on both sides of the aisle and uh, i would i would push back against traditional unreflectively pro-business conservatives on, on that front i have to say
1: Someone, we were talking before we started recording about the huge Venn diagram between you and Dr. Ford on a lot of issues, including, I would argue, uh, trade issues. Uh, you described yourself as a free trader. I think Dr. Ford would also. Mm-hmm. H- how does that play inside your party right now? What's your sense of how it plays inside the Republican Party? Neither neither side is really willing to embrace free trade, qua free trade. At this point, we've rejected what seem like some pretty sensible multilateral free trade arrangements uh, in recent history. Both parties have. How do we get back to a place where American politicians can be comfortable embracing free trade?
0: Well, let me uh, add one thing to the last conversation, which is that one of our major tools of soft power is diplomacy. That wasn't on the list that was just discussed. And I think it was Churchill who said we, we should jaw jaw before we war war. and. And I, I firmly believe that. And, and some of the great diplomats in each party have, I think, really seriously advanced America's interests over time. And uh, we shouldn't discard that. And Sadly, right at the moment, our State Department is pretty decimated, and I'm not hanging that on one person. I think we've underinvested in soft power really since the, uh, certainly since 9-11, but uh, since the end of the Cold War. And I've just recently written a book about that and about how we actually overinvested or over-militarized our response to 9-11, and I think have been less effective because of that. So I'm not against hard power. I am also for soft power. and Smart power is when you have the thing in in pretty good balance, uh, which is hard to achieve. But so about trade, yes, I voted for trade agreements and I voted for most favored nation status for China in the late 90s. And I didn't vote for every single trade agreement. I actually read them and considered them. But I think one of the achievements of the Trump administration, I just said that one of the achievements of the Trump administration was USMCA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. And it was a miracle to get that thing through Congress because as you point out, both parties have very strong anti-trade wings. Uh, America First is kind of a shorthand for America American protectionism. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. And, uh, and uh, certainly the Democratic Party over years, uh, especially the labor unions inside the Democratic Party, have resisted trade. I think we've missed a bet by not being in more smart trade agreements. For example, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was negotiated uh, in the Obama administration, and I thought was a pretty darn good idea, with most of the countries of Asia, was designed to do two things. One, to improve the ability of the West, including uh, these Asian countries, to negotiate the rules for trade, which helps us all. Uh, But to provide both uh, economic benefit and and a buffer to China's expansion. And now where are we? Uh, We pulled out under the Trump administration. The Biden administration has not made an effort to get us back in. And now China uh, just recently has announced it. It wants to be a bigger part of trading regimes in Asia. And I think that's a lose lose. And I think it's very sad that we are in this in this position.
1: Dr. Ford, you were in a senior position at the State Department in the last administration. Can can you react to the Congresswoman's assertions about the status of the State Department and its, and, its, and its strengths at this point in our history? Do you see something that needs to be addressed? And then can you also give us some thoughts on the Republican Party, traditionally more free trade than the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. now perhaps less pro-free trade uh, even than the Democrats? How do we adjust that?
2: Uh tough questions both. Um, uh, on the State Department, I, I mean, my impression was that some of the narratives one saw in the press about how, you know, I mean, you, you, one might one might be forgiven for thinking reading the sort of uh, salacious headlines over the, the course of the previous four years of the Trump administration that, you know, that Foreign Service officers are being taken out to the street corner and, and publicly executed or something. And, and, you know, there was a lot more, uh, there's a lot more going on. By our national security professionals in the diplomatic sphere, than I think the media wanted to give people credit for. And, and a good deal of, uh, of stuff was accomplished of, of enormous import. I mean, if you look at uh, issues of, of Middle East peace with Arab states traditionally mm-hmm. extraordinarily hostile to Israel being brought into relationships that I think very powerfully support regional peace and conduce to improved organization of a, of a a regional response to iranian efforts mm-hmm. to to attain hegemony um the efforts that uh, that were made to very much reorient um, our approach across multiple bureaus over the course of the last administration uh, to focus upon great power competition with china um, those are you know those are very diplomatic intensive sorts of efforts that uh, you know i i, I wouldn't want us to fail to get some credit for it. So I think the, the extent of the decline of the state department is enormously exaggerated. Now I would be a poor bureaucrat if I didn't think I would be, you know, much happier with more resources and more people doing more stuff. Right. But, uh, and I would support that frankly. Um, uh, but that's not the same thing as saying that our our diplomatic service has been hollowed out. Uh there, uh, you know, there was a narrative there that I think was really quite unfair, um, on trade. Um, That's a great question. I really don't know where things are going. For to some degree, there is an overlap that I think is unproblematic. And when it comes to to China trade in particular, um, you know, issues of national security and power competitive dynamics get involved here in ways that I think allow one to find common ground across this sort of political space in the United States on trade. Uh, You know, even free traders, uh, and I tend to be that historically, and, and even still. Uh, even free traders have to make I think some allowance for uh, for security stuff in my paper. I quote Adam Smith uh, on this you know even Adam Smith thinks that it's, you know it's, that there's some legitimacy in um, and, in taking what are in effect on economic positions where there are security implications and i I think a lot of engagement with China during the last administration, uh, not all by a long shot but a fair amount of it. Uh, revolved around those kinds of national security issues, and that's where you get things of technology control and pointing out the threat of China's military civil fusion strategy uh, and national security export controls as a tool to help address the threats that that presents. I don't think there need be any uh, tension between, you know, whether you're pro-trade or anti-trade, from a national security perspective, there are certainly some things that one just shouldn't bloody well allow. Uh, and I think we can still find some common ground there. Now, that doesn't answer the bigger questions of what to do about trade and tariff policy, but it's a piece that is often overlooked.
1: So, I want to ask you about about two events and get your thoughts about how we as a country can process them and and move forward. The first is uh, the insurrection at the Capitol on January sixth, uh, where the former president appeared to be supporting what some described as a coup, some described as an insurrection, others said it was merely a riot. Uh, in any case, it was very alarming for a lot of us, particularly those of us who had worked in and near the Capitol for so long and care so deeply about uh, our Article I branch of government and its importance to the, to the nation state. Uh, and then secondly, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, where it it appeared that the current president, who a lot of us uh, thought would bring a certain respect for diplomacy and multilateralism and competence to the job, those things appeared to be not quite what we saw. How do you process those two events and thinking about the way forward for our country?
0: Well, there's a lot in those in that question, and I don't think we have three hours. But let me just try briefly uh, to say a few things. First of all, I was a member of Congress on 9/11. I was work, walking toward the dome of the Capitol when my office called around 9 a.m. to t- to tell me about the airplanes uh, hitting the trade towers and the fact that the Capitol had just closed for business, which I thought was an appalling decision. You know, we take an oath to provide for the common defense, and we weren't we weren't there doing that. Uh, but at any rate, um, as scary as that day was, and it was very scary, and uh, we thought there would be follow on attacks. Everybody did. Uh, I thought that uh, January 6th was scarier because I saw in a place all three of us worked uh, and where I served for nine terms and where I worked for five years as a senior staffer in the Senate, uh, an imminent danger to continuity of government. I mean, Fortunately, it was the gang that couldn't shoot straight. But had uh, some of those wrist ties and other uh, uh, things been used more effectively, uh, serious bodily harm could have been done, even beyond that, causing death to some senior members of Congress and the vice president. And uh, it was horrifying. So uh, that was my reaction to that. And I do think we have to understand fully what happened, uh, why there was such a massive uh, a failure of security uh, and who 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 was involved and how to prevent it ever again. And, you know, we do have the tradecraft to keep the capital safe. I saw it. I was a very senior member of both the intelligence and homeland security committees during several inaugurations. We know how to do this. We, we just didn't do it. Uh, we either didn't anticipate or we didn't have, and I know this is also true, the chain of command clear in terms of who who needed to be where. So that's, that's one thing. On Afghanistan, uh, this is in my book, and I've thought for years that the decision to end the military mission was correct. Uh, we just had a conversation about perfection is not an option, and it surely wasn't an option here. The end was messy. I think the end always would have been messy. I think, you know, again, looking backwards, uh, should more planning have been done in certain a- uh, aspects? I do think so. Uh, should we ha- not have left Bagram Air Base when we did? Uh Probably. And, you know, should we have had boots on the ground until we had everyone out? Probably. Um, But I wasn't in the uh, in the sit room and I I didn't make the calls and I don't know what all the inputs were. Um, But I I think it needs to be, you know, a teaching moment. And uh, I I applaud the fact that we are, you know, talk about uh, military might and all that we are coming up with a more holistic strategy about how America projects itself. Um, But I surely hope that the Americans and other allies left behind in Afghanistan can get to safety uh, quickly.
1: Dr. Ford, what are your corresponding thoughts about American democratic legitimacy at this point, and also our commitment to working with allies and steadfastness with those who
2: are fighting alongside us? Well, I mean, I I certainly share what I'm I assume all of us feel about the, uh, the degree to which January 6th was just a disgraceful episode. Mm-hmm. I mean the idea that uh, in, in, in this country um, that the, a, a mob should violently try to seize control of the national legislature in order to hold it hostage and prevent the constitutional transfer of power is just a disgrace. Um, I like to think and I hope that this will in time be seen as actually a symbol of strength insofar as, what matters is how we deal with this, and where we go now, and what this does or doesn't mean uh, over time for the stability of our democratic institutions. As an example, I hope it will be one of of the resilience of our institutions and our ability to to soldier on um, through traumas that, you know, frankly, most other systems I think would would crack asunder completely uh, facing, you know, some equivalent uh, problems. And indeed, most countries. Uh, That have faced equivalent things to that end up going down some very bad routes. So, so I I think it'll, I hope it'll be seen as a a source of, of strength and legitimacy, ironically, for us, but it's certainly an uncomfortable and shameful period in our, in our history, we'll just have to see where and in what ways we can rally. Uh, to, uh, to to move forward. On our allies, but I think, as I tried to express in the, in the paper that I, I authored for, for NSI on principled conservatism, as I see it, a principled conservative is very much committed to um, our alliance relationships. Mm-hmm. There may be some you know, questions of nuance. I would say that, that principled conservatives are particularly good at being committed to alliance relationships for the sake of our security. Um, with the caveat that if it should be that uh, an international treaty or a relationship ends up being not so helpful for our security, I think we are more comfortable walking away from it. I think there is more reluctance on the left to do that sort of thing, just because if you look at arms control debates over INF and open skies and things of that nature during the last few years, I think you see more of an unwillingness on the left to walk away from an institution that is not serving our interests just because it is an international institution, and that there's something sort of transcendentally valuable about that, uh, that you you just shouldn't walk away from, period. And I would certainly differ from that. I think a principled conservative is perfectly willing to walk away from things that don't serve our security interests. But that's almost a quibble in the sense that the fundamental point that I want to make is that a principal conservative should absolutely be firmly committed to bolstering our alliance relationships where they serve our interests. And by the way, they do serve our interests. Uh, And by the way, this is not a world that we perhaps maybe got too used to after the end of the Cold War, when we can sort of wave our hands and have more or less what we wanted without compromise. Um, This is a world in which success in our competitive challenges requires working with others. It requires those allies in a way that sort of didn't we sort of stopped worrying about it uh, for a while. Um, And we we would sort of decide what our posture needed to be and then go explain to them why that was in their interest. We need to have an engaged approach working with our partners precisely because the challenges that we and they face are bigger than either one of us can handle on our own. And that means, you know, perhaps going against post-Cold War conservative instincts in, uh, in being really quite solicitous of what Allies think we should be doing and making that a real consideration, not a dispositive consideration, but a real one and how we make our own decisions. Mm-hmm. We need those partnerships in order to succeed in the uh, in the competitive challenges that we face.
1: Right. Congresswoman, I, I, I'd love for you to react to uh, this idea of the transcendental value of multilateral institutions, whether they're, you know, the United Nations itself or one of its agencies or an arms control agreement. Just for the sake of discussion, does the Democratic Party occasionally value those entities more than they should because of a an ideological approach? And further, how do we deal with that moving forward when? the the rise of China is presenting such a clear challenge to us over the next decade or two. How do we adapt those multilateral institutions if one party's maybe a little too willing to throw them away and another one's maybe maybe a little too willing to hold on to them for too long?
0: Well, remember, I just uh, completed a decade as uh, president and CEO of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and it is the living memorial to President Wilson who actually was known and not always favorably for many things he did domestically, including getting us off the gold standard, you know, creating the Federal Reserve and creating the income tax system and the Federal Trade Commission. But his epitaph is about his failed effort to create the League of Nations, but the, the, the driving uh, intellectual thinking behind it. And that spawned a series of international institutions, many of which need some reinvention now. I'm not going to go defend them one by one uh, because I think many of them do and are moribund with bureaucratic uh, <laughs> uh, problems. And uh, uh, some of the the, the ex- executive committee functions uh, in some of them are, you know, include the wrong group, groups of, of countries, etc. So I'm not I'm not picking institutions in particular, but I think you know my my sort of. Uh, uh, approach is mend it, don't end it. And maybe Chris and I have finally found something we disagree on. But I, I think that way with international commitments, too. I think the Trump administration would have been much better off to stay in the Iran deal, which was surely not perfect. Oh, my God, it was not perfect. It was a containment deal for Iran's nuclear nuclear uh, capacity only. Should it have restrained malign behavior? Yes. Should it have had inspections of missile sites, yes, should it, you know, so on. But I, again, would have mended it, not ended it. I think you build on these things. You don't discard them and start over, especially because inertia being what it is, it's very hard to rebuild anything uh, these days. Can't even get Congress to agree on, on, uh, you know, whether it's daytime or nighttime. I mean, we're watching this slow implosion that's just, for me, colossally, personally painful. So back to this. I think we do need an overlay of some international institutions they don't all have to be governmental institutions we've seen an overlay of ngos that are very effective given the refugee crisis even given the given the challenges of getting people out of afghanistan it's very interesting that uh, the us government didn't w- was supplemented by a bunch of other efforts and There's this new word that I hadn't read before. I think it's plurilateralism, which has to do with citizen activism uh, overlaid over international and nation state structures. So I think the problems are evolving and I, I guess I think that the nation state can't do it all for all the reasons I mentioned earlier. Uh,
1: Dr. Ford, I, w- I want to uh, start the last question with you, and then uh, Congresswoman, I'm going to ask the uh, corresponding question for you uh, subsequent to, to his answer. And and Dr. Ford, the question is this: What can uh, the Republican Party do now to start demonstrating a willingness to get back to a bipartisan foreign policy, a bipartisan national security strategy for our country, which surely is in our national interest to do so how what what specific steps uh, or specific concepts could Republicans embrace now to get to that place
2: well I think some of the challenges that that the party face, or probably the principal challenges that the party faces uh, in terms of, of finding a collective footing um, on policy issues and putting itself in a place where it will be prepared to go back to the American people to ask them whether it is an appropriate steward of, of of this country's uh, interests uh, going forward. Most of that is probably more on the domestic front. Uh, And, and, you know, I I thank my stars that I don't professionally engage in most of that because that is all extraordinarily painful and thorny right now on the foreign policy front. I think we're actually starting to do that. I mean, I I, I feel like Mm -hmm. having this conversation here is a, I say that not specifically just as a Republican, but I think as a policy professional engaged with these issues, you know, I mean, I hope you haven't felt less like you have you know, screwed up in setting up this podcast by having two people who don't disagree enough to be interesting. But I actually take hope from the fact that, that we are actually, I mean, I, I see uh, the differences that we have articulated on this show so far being more of degree than of kind. And to the degree that that's the case and that we both understand that, you know, look, politics and policy are hard, they're complicated, compromises are often necessary, the world is not perfectible. You know, if you start from that foundation point, then you can have a conversation about whether and where to meet others in You know what passes for a Goldilocks point in the middle that really does move things forward in a good way, without either being, you know, as the, you know, the the soup being too hot or too cold. Um, You can't have that approach if you start from a an origin point of, you know, performative politics and virtue signaling, where the point of me being involved in the policy arena is to show that I am ideologically pure. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you come at it from that direction, either on the left or the right, well, of course you're not going to be able to get anything done by meeting in the middle. But I do think. That this kind of conversation, this kind of dialogue and engagement is actually a piece of what we should be doing. So I guess I want to say thank you, Les. <laughs> ah, well, very good. Congresswoman, uh, of course, Democrats
1: have the reins of our sled here at the moment. What can your party do to perhaps build a more bipartisan future?
0: Well, the last chapter of my book is The Incredible Shrinking Congress. And I think we. Have lost as a country uh, because Congress, which is the Article I branch of government, the executive is the Article II branch and the courts are Article III, uh, has been AWOL. And something that uh, Bob Corker, a man I respect and who was a great leader of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a period, um,
2: was. And, and, and Less's less boss and mine.
0: <laughs> I I know this was a deliberate comment something that he felt strongly about was that Congress should authorize the use of military force. I mean, maybe it seems axiomatic. He came to the Wilson Center on my watch and called it irresponsible of Congress not to be doing anything here. So where are we? We're still arguing about whether to repeal and replace or just repeal the threadbare 2001 AUMF uh, authorizing uh, uh, the U.S. to go after those who attacked us on 9-11. Well, Oops! It's been justified, used to justify military missions in nineteen countries, or what is it? Yeah, 19, forty military missions in nineteen countries since, and Congress has not been able to field and and pass a replacement. Even though, to his credit, Joe Biden favors this. Joe Biden's another former chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. At any rate, uh, should the Democratic Party be doing more? Should the both parties be doing more together? You bet! I mean, some good news, some good news, is that the Foreign Relations Foreign Affairs Committee's Are more bipartisan than most parts of Congress. Um, I know it's a low bar, but they are more bipartisan than most parts of Congress. And uh, that is the case. And uh, so just maybe they can uh, muster the will and the heft to get some stuff done. Uh, But yes, we need a, I started with this, we need a, I think, a bipartisan foreign policy, which doesn't mean everybody agrees on everything, which doesn't mean that both sides started in the same place. But a vibrant, evolving foreign policy against a vibrant, evolving world, and if Congress were uh, not shrinking but but growing or growing back the muscle memory that it once had uh, in the great days, uh, I think the U.S. would be would be projecting itself as a stronger actor in the world. And I am for the U.S. being a strong actor in the world. I think we offer, and I think Chris and I would t- all of us would agree. And hey, and. Uh, and surely uh, uh, Corker would agree that uh, we we need to be that force. And we uh, we now operate in what is a total broken business model, where if you work together, you are bipartisan and therefore you get a primary when you seek reelection. And so we pull apart. The center seems to be uh, quite absent. And, and the need for agreement is quite absent, and it, it is a lose-lose paradigm for America.
1: So this is the uh, 99th episode of this podcast, and we named it Fault Lines because we wanted to explore the differences between the right and the left on issues of foreign policy and national security. Uh, it is clear to me more and more every day, and particularly today, that that uh, title might be a little bit ironic because uh, we keep talking about that very big Venn diagram where, where both sides uh, seem to have much more agreement than anyone might suspect. Based on a cursory review of politics and policymaking. So, a uh, deep thank you to both of you for participating in this conversation. I thought we covered a lot of great topics. Really great conversation today. Thank Take you. I'm delighted
0: to be here. And hello to Bob Corker. Perhaps
1: he's listening. We will pass that along. Thank you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. And please be sure to read Dr. Ford's paper, Principled Conservatism in America's Foreign Affairs and National Security Policy, which can also be found on our website. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason Natsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.